Hello and welcome to FuturePod. I'm Rebecca Meyett. The Futures and Foresight community comprises a remarkable and diverse group of individuals who span academic, commercial and social interests. At FuturePod, we seek to honour and to learn from the wisdom of those who have established and developed our field, to connect and support the practice of those who work in this space, and most importantly, to give pathways and inspiration to those who wish to join us in creating humane and better futures for ourselves and those who come after us. Today, our guest is Richard Hames, an entrepreneur, strategic futurist, mentor and author. Richard is an Australian citizen, educated in Europe and domiciled in Asia, and has lived and worked around the globe. Described by Forbes Asia as one of the smartest people on the planet, Richard is among the world's most influential thinkers. As a foresight practitioner, Richard and his team have examined hundreds of topics ranging from the future of conflict and work to taxation, business and society, food security, international terrorism, smart cities, science and alternative energy. Welcome to FuturePod, Richard. It's lovely to be with you again. Thanks, mate. It's nice to be here. To start off, we'd just love to hear about how you actually started in the field. Well, how did you begin your work? and Totally accidentally. Okay. Uh, and I never called myself a futurist. Hmm. And I was working with W. Edwards Deming on the father of total quality management and working very closely with him on um, quality and he, out of the blue one day, he said, you know, you should devote more time to thinking about the future because you live in the future. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, if you listen carefully to your own language, it's very oriented towards what will be rather than what is today or what's what's past. And uh, I thought very carefully about that. And then I thought, yes, he, he's absolutely right. I absolutely care and my passion is all about what is coming at us mm. rather than what has been mm. but i interpret that in terms of actually being a buddhist thinking about the present because mm. what concerns me most as a futurist is not the future but the present mm. and what we're doing today and how we interpret and translate what we're doing today so yeah totally by accident mm. and so what was your next step after that in terms of knowing that um, you want to think more about the future or kind of pivot some concentration more towards the future? What did you do next after you discovered that was of interest? Uh, nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to, be, to be honest, because uh, I've come to the conclusion, I mean, time is an illusion anyway. Yeah, yeah. So past, present, future are yeah. very illusory uh, concepts. Mm. So, so for me, it's, it's more of a continuum. So in my thinking, uh, the thing that matters to me is what I call the expanded now, which is trying to draw an appreciation of the deep past and the deep future into the present moment and have that moment pregnant with possibility from both of those, from the whole continuum. Uh, and I didn't actually, I mean, as I said, I'd never called myself a futurist i never mm. thought of myself as a futurist because mm. i can't divorce the future mm. from the present or the mm. past it, to me it is one mm. so uh, when people started calling me a futurist i said stop it don't, don't call me that mm. Mm. but it's persisted 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> Need to label it. Um, and so were there any particular um, books or people that you um, came across as you were starting that sort of helped you develop your thinking about the future? Well, yes. The, I mean, the, the big influence probably initially was Global Business Network, people like Peter Schwartz and Napier Collins and those guys okay. on the West Coast, simply because uh, in conjunction with um, Oliver Freeman and Richard Borden, we, the three of us, um, started Australian Business Network, which was a, the Australian outpost, if you like, of GBN. And so their idea of strategic conversation and the use of scenarios, um, mm. uh, Jay Ogilvie's work, all contributed to my initial thinking. But I have to say that very, very quickly I became disenchanted with that mm. and thought it very... Uh, linear actually and partial in terms of really thinking in an expanded way and uh, so I left and set up my own group. Mm, mm, great so in terms of your connection we know through a number of people that we've done a couple of the podcasts through already that you helped to educate them or bring their thinking around the futures to life in their early stages of their their study and education, one being through the, the Masters of Strategic Foresight program mm. at Swinburne. Mm. Would you like to talk a little bit about yeah, that do. of your involvement yes. in, in that yes. group? That was an invitation from Richard, Richard Slaughter, mm -hmm. uh, to come onto the advisory board. And uh, okay. I think I eventually chaired that for a, uh, a time and also uh, contributed occasionally to some, some teaching. Uh, and that, that was interesting because um, uh, mostly I wanted it to be very practical. Mm. And so we did some very, very practical stuff, project stuff, actually. There was one that I think was particularly influential on a number of the students that we did with the Department of Sustainability and Environment. Mm. Um, and we tried out different thinking and tried out different models. And mm -hmm. it was a real test of, of foresight working or not in that kind of community. And that was interesting. It was at the time, the, the, the major project that DSE were doing was uh, called Melbourne 2020, I think, mm -hmm. uh, or something like that. So this is quite a few years ago. <laughs> so, so we were trying to contribute to that. Yeah, okay. Wonderful. And also I should say that probably more important than that in mm. terms of uh, supporting people and encouraging people to think mm. differently through different contexts, through different lenses, mm. and also through different design ontologies mm -hmm. was the fact that what, one of the things I, I value myself about the work I've done, and I think other people value f of me, is my network, which is just, I mean, second mm. to none. It's extraordinary. Mm. So I can connect people mm. Uh, and if I if I don't know somebody, mm. I will know somebody who does know that mm. somebody. Mm. And I think that um, was particularly useful in, in connecting people with different thinking. Are there any particular people who you might still be closely aligned with from, from back when you first started? The, well, having such a huge network, yes. The, 
so but they're they're mostly people who again wouldn't call themselves futurists mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and so people like escobar for example mm -hmm. uh who wrote uh, epistemologies of the south and okay. people like uh, michelle bowens who's the founder of the peer-to-peer -peer foundation okay. so alternative thinking yeah about today and tomorrow rather than people who fit more conveniently into the to the compartment of futurist yeah um yeah which simply reflects what i said before it's that i don't see yeah. myself as focusing on the future and so i don't really take much notice of people who call themselves futurists So, Richard, is there a particular tool or method that, that comes to mind that you'd like to share with the community in terms of something that's really valuable or um, an interesting approach to thinking about foresight and, and futures? Yes, ab absolutely. I tend to be very inclusive in terms of method. And so, for me, if I see a method, I will use it for its value. And so that encompasses, obviously, uh, Claire Graves' work, um, Ken Wilber's work, uh, uh, Stafford Beer. I mean, you, you name it. And, and I tend to try and find a way of using that. But in terms of a particular method, which now at the Centre for the Future we use a lot, um, it, it actually arose out of the influence on me from both Richard Slaughter and Richard Borden. And I don't know who it was. I think it was Oliver Freeman called us the three dickheads. Um, <laughs> but, 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 but certainly there was a kind of chemistry between mm, us. Okay. And I was very influenced by some of the work Richard was doing in terms of conversational strategies mm. and Richard Borden in terms of systems dynamics. Mm. And out of that came... Uh, method, uh, again, Marvin Oka uh, contributed an enormous amount to what we call transformational narrative. And transformational narrative is is quite a complex experience. I don't call it a process because it's a mix of processes and it, use, it brings in uh, aspects of different models. Mm -hmm. um, but essentially it's an attempt to take conversation that normally exists in the real world uh, deeper in the con the unconscious world so it's a it's a destabilization destabilization and dis, uh, deconstruction of current belief systems an attempt to inject alternative intelligence which and we use AI for that a lot now into the conversation and then reforming or reconstituting or recreate reconstructing mm. belief systems when so that you come into the design world um, of the real world again uh, with many more options than before now at the same time as that is happening the curators of transformational narrative have to moderate 
uh, again this that this conversation in an expanded now so they they're going through that kind of process of deconstruction mm. and reconstruction of belief systems and talking about what now mm. what it becomes possible now what was invisible before mm. that is now visible to us mm. that makes a difference but also drawing again from the deep past the deep future and trying to uh, bring all of that into an expanded now of possibility. Mm -hmm. uh, I mentioned AI. The reason we bring AI into that is is obvious because it can scan in terms of horizon scanning. Mm. It uh, it can scan the, uh, an algorithm can scan hundreds of millions of documents in seconds that are in the public domain mm. at least, and we can map uh, and simulate. Uh, in real time, uh, systems dynamics using that data. Um, so we use that and we use also, we, we'll never have a conversation outside of an immersive environment mm -hmm. so that we can actually visualize the complexity of the situation we're dealing with. So if you take all of that together, we call it the wayfinding experience. And it's a mix of transformational narrative, AI, a little tool, which I call systemic acupuncture, mm -hmm. which identifies an intervention point in the system you're analyzing mm -hmm. and looking at, which is the most benign, least disruptive point of entry in order to change the energy in the entire system. Uh, so that's the tool we use on ourselves at the center of the future in determining mm. new projects. Mm. And we're also using on our major initiative at the moment, which is looking at establishing a series of experiments uh, around how you wage peace in the Middle East um, when every attempt to uh, create peace in the Middle East has, has not worked. So uh, we're, we're having a bash at that. Mm. And the Centre of the Future. Yes. Tell me more about that. Centre of the Future was established three years ago uh, really as a challenge to me because I, I give, as you know, I give a lot of public speak I do a lot mm. of public speaking mm. and I actually did one in Melbourne and this guy came up it was on leadership or rather the lack of leadership in society and particularly government and uh, he came up to me his name was Steve Graham and he said um, you you really have some fabulous ideas you 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 know you should stop talking and stop writing and actually do something and I was so offended I was really offended and I I was polite in the moment, but he kept bothering me with emails for four to five months and kept badgering me saying, look, I'm, I'm a wealthy man. I can, and he was, he is, um, I can afford to, to help you bring some of these ideas to life. Why not? And I, there was me in Thailand, perfectly happy circumnavigating the globe with my mentoring practice and writing. And yeah, I was having fun but eventually he convinced me that we foresight actually if it's to mean anything at all actually does need to change things now not keep dreaming about what the future might be or could be or should be and uh, the first project turned out to be what is now known as my vote mm -hmm. which uh, is an attempt to uh, get rid of all the flaws in representative democracy and the potential for corruption of the system, uh, at least of all individuals, and um, and present di di direct democracy, a form of direct democracy, so that we give power back to the people 
in a genuine way. And the uh, the IP we developed was commercialised through Horizon State. So we actually created two entities, MyVote and Horizon State, one not-for-profit, one for-profit, in order to get this thing going. And uh, interestingly enough, yes, it's big in India with the, the Democratic Party of India going to elections next year. Um, about five million members who have adopted my vote. Uh, it's uh, in the state of Iowa. Mm -hmm. They're looking at it in Scotland, Bermuda, mm -hmm. or Indonesia, all over the place. Mm -hmm. So um, from that point of view, it's been quite successful. Although, to be honest, the only reason I was intrigued about uh, using a project within a, the kind of power and governance field of human activity, uh, and democracy in particular, yeah. was because I, my question is whether it's actually democracy is actually sufficient for our needs. And I actually don't think it is. Mm. So if we can get it working as best it possibly can mm. with today's tools and giving users, giving citizens the kind of experience that a Steve Jobs gives us through the iPhone, an aesthetic, mm. you know, a beautiful experience, um, then we can ask the question, well, actually, does it work or do we need to redesign mm. the whole thing? Mm. And I'm mm. pretty sure we will. What do you see uh, as some of the the forces that are shaping the future? Where, where do you see the future moving towards? One of the questions that we're asking all of our podcast guests is uh, how do you how do you see the future in say 30 years time can you share your thoughts on on that mm. it depends i guess whether you take an optimistic or a dystopian view of things because uh, we're really i think in a transition between one society which we're very familiar with and we know and you know the the twin pillars of democracy and capitalism have structured that society and a lot of um, the institutions within that are crumbling there's no doubt about that but we're in this period of disruption where we're not quite sure what's emerging uh, through the other side mm. and inevitably i suppose in any period such as this and if you look back through history you see it uh, the big questions relate to what we can't control uh, and so the things that, it, let's take the dystopian view at, the, uh, at first, and I'm often called a Cassandra, which I possibly am, uh, but I hope I've got solutions as well. Uh, but the things that really concern me, I mean, the obvious one is climate change. Mm -hmm. Just yesterday, you know, that we have this new report from the, um, from the, the major climate scientists in the world saying that it's going to be really difficult to contain temperatures uh, to 1.5 degrees Celsius. I've never believed that was possible anyway. I, I, I believe it'll be somewhere between two degrees and four degrees by the turn of the century. The US military are preparing for four degrees by the turn of the century. And so I, I think yeah, inevitably is gonna be something uh, in that space. Another thing that um, really worries me is the unregulated environment for uh, machine intelligence, especially as developed by the military. So if you bring drones together with uh, AI and 
the ability to uh, swarm technology. Uh, that that's a field which is almost totally unregulated at the moment, as is nanotech, uh, for example. So all of that worries me enormously, and I don't think the law is capable of catching up. So I think we have to reinterpret what law is, and in terms of AI, it's code. So we should be working on code to make sure that it's less harmful or not harmful at all to humans, but we're not doing that. Uh, so, so they're the major two, but the third, which is a result of all of those, is not easy to pin down. It's, it's as though as this sense of despair hanging in the air that's infecting young people particularly. Mm. Um, if you look at suicide rates, for example, all over the world, I mean, not in any particular society, although Japan is, is by far the, the mm. lead, um, uh, you, and you look at drug abuse and look you look at um, the, the kind of uh, opting out of society in different ways, that, that concerns me enormously. And it's obvious that education, in particular schools and universities, haven't a clue about what they should be teaching. So they're just continuing to teach what they've always taught yeah. and not at all well, actually. Mm. And so we're moving into a situation from a dystopian point of view where there are many components where you bring them all together and you have to say that James Lovelock in suggesting that the human population will be around one billion people mm -hmm. by the turn of the century could be spot on. Mm. And I must admit, I'm very worried about uh, my youngest uh, children particularly and my grandchildren because I think uh, we have to have conversations in society which we're not having at all. We're not having any conversations. And we need to start seriously fearing the, the big things facing humanity and stop listening to the little fears which are perpetrated on television and in the newspapers by the Murdoch press every evening where, you know, you just... You just the mind boggles mm. at the inconsequential nature of the news we're fed as pap. Mm. So that's on the dystopian side. Mm. Uh, on the optimistic side, I'm hopeful that the ingenuity of humanity will work out when we learn to collaborate and cooperate with each other more effectively. Mm -hmm. Once we start looking through the lens of the human family and saying, we're all in this together, there's no Real, no, really no difference between any of us. Forget ideology, mm. forget politics, forget um, ethnicity, forget uh, all of those things that tend to separate mm. and distort the fact that we are nature. And again, that's, that's a, a fracture that is, has been absolutely useless to us. Mm. We, we're, nature isn't something and we're something else. It's all part of the same thing. And I think a lot of the younger generation are actually seeing this. The problem is people of my generation who've caused a lot of the problems we have are simply not getting out of the way. Mm. We think we have the answers to all those problems in spite of the fact that we caused them in the first place. Mm. What we should be doing is accelerating and expanding the influence of young people in every possible way. Mm.
and might I add, women. Mm. And the, the fact that we live in this society, which is essentially still patriarchal mm. in a very negative sense, mm. it's harming men as well. So in, in your view, are there any cultures or countries that come to mind where that's a bit more balanced in terms of the male and female yeah, you have different. Influence. You have different kind of relationships and different kinds of balances. Yeah, I think the problem, the major problem, if you're thinking at a cognitive point, from yeah, a cognitive okay. point of view, okay. the real problem that we're facing, humanity is facing, is we seem to have reached a cognitive threshold, which, by the way, I think Claire Graves was onto when when he was pointing to that momentous leap needed to take us to a different level mm. of consciousness and mm. understanding in order to evolve more consciously and intelligently. Mm -hmm. I, I really believe we've reached a, a cognitive threshold where we seem unable to break through and solve the problems today. Mm -hmm. And we're, my generation, passing them on to your generation. Mm. Okay, mm. you deal with it. Um, that, that's a real problem. Underpinning that is the Western worldview, because that's the worldview amongst many, mm. amongst a pluriverse of worldviews. Mm. The West, the Occidental worldview of empire and uh, predatory capitalism, uh, the extractionist paradigm, all of those things has led to us objectifying everything mm. and rationalising everything and thinking there's a technological solution for everything. Yeah. And that could be disastrous mm. for us. Uh, in, I, I think the only society in the world that seems to have been quarantined from the Western worldview as it is today is Indigenous peoples, mm. the First Nations. Mm. And... They seem to have escaped the trap that we've, or this prison that we've invented for ourselves, that we can't see a way through. Uh, so, the, we live in a pluriverse, and we need to start designing for the pluriverse, not a universal mm. thing. There's mm. no one size fits all. Mm. We've got to accept that yeah. there are differences, and yeah. and we should be embracing that difference and mm. the diversity, mm. instead of saying no, our way or the highway. Mm. And something you mentioned earlier in terms of education and the education of our children and, and kids in school at the minute, been, they've been taught what they've always been taught. Do you have a view on what are some of the things that it would be great for them to be taught now in, the, in this context? So well, the, the, first, the first thing would be the context itself okay. because they don't under... The, Teachers don't understand what the context is. Even a lot of children don't understand what the context is. Okay. So frameworks, context, models, the yeah. ways of thinking, yeah. new epistemologies, new what I mentioned before, new design ontologies, yeah. uh, questioning, conversation, yes. empathy, relationships, mm. all the things that you we do better than machines. Mm. But what is being taught in schools and universities still is still content that machines do better mm. and so you know in 10 years time 15 years time machines will be doing this mm. we won't need to do it mm. so what is left mm. where will the meaning for life come from mm. if kids are haven't been subjected to that those different contexts different uh, ways of thinking about ourselves and our relationship to each other and the planet mm -hmm. 
So what is foresight? Just imagine that, and I'm sure you do this probably almost daily or if not weekly, how do you describe foresight to someone who hasn't come across it before or futures thinking before? How do you how do you describe it to them? I tend to stay away from stare away from futures thinking mm-hmm. uh, because I don't really understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Uh, but foresight or strategic foresight to me is all about making better sense of what is happening today so that we can design better futures. Mm-hmm. So that, that, for me, it's uh, a very pragmatic and practical way of trying to interpret what's going on and what uh, what isn't. So mm. what are we seeing? Why are we seeing it that way? Mm. Uh, are there any other ways we can see that? And then make uh, more sense of what seems to be nonsensical or farcical or a charade or or complicated, or complex, all of those things, mm. in order to design, come into design thinking in a way which gives you an expanded choice of looking at what could be. Mm-hmm. But obviously, strategic foresight is, is plural. I mean, there are mm. many interpretations of foresight, and they're mm. probably all legitimate. So I, I wouldn't... Uh, try to say that my definition of foresight is the definition. Mm. I would never try to do that. It, it's just my definition, and it's how mm. I find it useful mm. to explain mm. to other people. Yep. Most people, it's because I do so much public speaking, mm. most people expect a futurist to uh, have some kind of crystal ball and only talk about the future. And I find that a real pain. Mm. Um, and so I I tend to explain strategic foresight through my practice. And my practice is quite simple. On my desk every morning are reports from people I have in my network from all over the world on particular issues that I happen to be interested in. My active network is about 9,000 people. So effectively, I've got around 9,000 sensors around the world uh, picking stuff up for me and feeding it to me in reports. I use an algorithm for scanning those reports uh, uh, and synthesizing and analyzing that material. And then I bring my own insight and judgment and experience to interpreting that in terms of what's going on. And then use design thinking for potential solutions. Richard, what's the Centre for the Future and what's your involvement with it? I started it and it was uh, it came out of this challenge to me that I mentioned earlier. Mm. And I'd, I'd just gone away thinking about, well, all of the stuff I've written about and all the stuff I talk about, what would I actually do? What, how would I go about finding solutions to some second-order change problems, because no one anywhere uh, really is addressing second-order change. Let me give you an example, because people say, well, what's the difference between first-order change and second-order change? First-order change is you've got a lot of money, so you go, you think Africa is 
needing help. So we'll give them aid or we dig a well in a village and we'll then create a school so that the kids are educated, etc, etc. All of that is first order change. You can see it happening. You, you can judge your return on investment. You, there is no lag between the investment and the return, effectively. Mm. And you can call it social impact or social innovation or impact investment. Call it what you'd like. And I'm not saying that's a bad thing. All of it's good. But no one is addressing the fact that of all the aid we give to the continent of Africa from all the nations on Earth, the wealth coming out of Africa flowing to countries like this is almost five times the value of the aid we give them. Mm. So the second order change problem is how do we change that? Mm. Because if we can change that, we don't have to go in with ideals of generosity or aid or charity and say, you poor things, you know, you deserve this. We can actually say, do it yourself. Mm. But we have to change the, the second order problem first. And no one is doing that. Mm. Uh, so with with the Centre for the Future, let me go back because I was still in limbo of whether we could do anything at all. Mm -hmm. Because I speak to a great many philanthropists and very wealthy people, foundations, universities, governments, and none of them really understand or want to engage in second order change doesn't win votes for politicians it's too long term mm. uh, venture capitalists and social impact investors that can't wait 15 or 20 years mm -hmm. to see a return so i mean it's it's all not in the favor of second order change so huge problems to surmount so is it worth it or not so i went back to thailand i'd, I'd met steve in sydney at the airport and we talked briefly and it did get under, it was like a burr under the saddle or a splinter, you know, in mm. the finger. It did nag me, but I was putting it off and trying not to say yes. Got back to Thailand and that night had a dream. And I usually mm. I cannot remember my dreams. I dream deep, uh, I sleep deeply. Don't ever remember my dreams. But here I was. My body was being burned at my funeral. And all my children, I've got 10 children and 14 grandchildren, they were all there and friends. I mean, it was a huge gathering around this burning body and I was having this out-of-body experience and eavesdropping on the conversations. And my youngest son, Nico, who's seven, was saying to my oldest son, Ben, who's 42, if dad knew so much about what was wrong with the world, why didn't he do more to help us? Mm. Well, that was the clincher. Mm. That um, I emailed Steve the next day and said, okay, you're on. Mm. We'll, we'll start something. I, we didn't know what it was going to be, what it was called. Mm. So we started from scratch. And we, we said, okay, there are, we agreed. There were five theatres of human activity where second order change is needed and the first one which is really uh holding it's a balancing loop it's holding everything else in place at the moment is how we exercise power and authority and governance and so we said okay let's do something in that space let's find something and that's how we found my vote 
and uh, everything went on from there. The most interesting thing possibly is that because of the tool systemic acupuncture, we think we can look at a complex system and not go for the most disruptive leverage, mm -hmm. but go for the least disrupt disruptive nudge, mm -hmm. which will change the energy in the entire system. Mm -hmm. If you understand balancing loops, in other words, the dynamics that keep everything in place, you can then find the point at which you can unbalance those balancing loops. Mm -hmm. So what we're doing at the moment is just starting a series of experiments called MEPI, uh, Middle East Peace Projects Incubator, where we're looking at establishing a series of projects where we use that IP to find those nudges with people in the region, not preach at them or say, we've got the solution, but help them using that IP find some small, insignificant, under-the-radar counterintuitive nudges mm -hmm. so we don't have to go to the big players like uh, the american defense system mm. for example mm. or the the alliance between uh israel and saudi of all nations those two persuading the u.s to be involved in iran and yemen and you know the, uh, the mess that's there and people laugh and they say well you know, you're you're trying to intervene there in uh, a change which no effort has worked. Mm -hmm. And my answer is we're not using effort. Mm. We're using a small amount of energy and we're at the same time trying to find ways to repurpose the military to wage peace, not wage war, with their own budget. So we're actually trying something which hasn't been tried before to try and resolve one of the most complex issues on the planet. Mm -hmm. And the reason for that is if you look at second order, the kind of second order changes that are needed, there's one fundamental prerequisite for any of them, and it's cooperation. Mm -hmm. with Humanity needs to cooperate. Mm -hmm. And you can't do that if you're fighting each other continually and calling each other names. Mm -hmm. It's not possible. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the project we've got on board at the moment. Yeah, and so would you say a d defining aspect of the Centre for the Future is that it is action-focused? So not so much about education, but really about actively working on projects that will, will have some type of impact in, Absolutely. in the it's world. Absolutely. It's pragmatic. It is a, it's not about education, but it is about learning mm. and applying that learning mm. in, in, a, in practical ways to change practices, mm -hmm. to change ideologies, mm -hmm. to change relationships, to change conversations. Mm -hmm. uh, and so in that sense, it's a gift for future generations. Mm. I feel like we've just scratched a very small <laughs> amount of the surface that we could, we could talk about. But thank you so much for for taking the time and sharing your thoughts with the community. It's a great pleasure. And yeah, it's a small scratch, but there's no blood. Yeah. <laughs> this has been another production from FuturePod. FuturePod is a not-for-profit venture. We exist through the generosity of our supporters. If you would like to support FuturePod, go to the Patreon link on our website. Thank you for listening. Remember to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. This is Rebecca Mead saying goodbye for now. <laughs>